can turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We are nearing the end of our journey through 1 Thessalonians as we work our way through verse by verse. And I am excited for that. I'm looking forward to the next book. I believe we're going to go into the book of uh, John, the Gospel of John. And so, uh, yeah, I've been thinking that for some time now, and I'm very excited to go there. But we still got a little bit more work to do before we get there. And so, um, let me pray for us, and uh, we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, the name that is above every other name. We love you so very much, God, and we thank you that we are accepted in your Son, that our sins have been washed away, removed from us as far as the east is from the west, and we're not only forgiven, but we are beloved children now in your sight. We've been adopted into the family of God, sons and daughters, and we praise you as such today, Father. We give you glory and honor. We thank you for your word that you have delivered to us. You've preserved it for us, God. You've given us your spirit so that we can understand it, God, and be forever changed by the word. And so I pray that you would minister your word to us today by your spirit, God, that it would give life and encouragement and strength and hope. God, you know the needs in this room today. You know the hurts, you know the fears, you know the struggles the insecurities, the failures. You know it all, God. And your word is sufficient, more than sufficient. And God, you are more than enough to meet us in every single way, God. And we know that you desire to do that today. And we have that confidence in you. And we thank you for that, Father. So would you please speak to us through your word, God? Would you speak through me, Father? Use me for your glory, God. Help me in my weakness. For in my weakness, your strength is perfected. May I speak with clarity, love, boldness, accuracy, conviction for the glory of your name and for the sake of your church. We praise you, God, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen and amen. All right. So I've titled today's message, Living on the Lookout. Living on the Lookout. Now, you guys know that for several weeks now, we've been in this context of uh, pleasing God through holy living, right? You should know that by now. We've been talking about this week after week after week. In the very beginning of this portion of Scripture, we talked about how it's not our happiness that God is so much concerned with. It is our holiness. And that is what is pleasing to God. And that was how Paul kind of started the text there in chapter 4. And then he began to unpack that and give practical ways in which we can walk in holiness before God talked about sexual purity, our sanctification in that regard, talked about brotherly love, and on and on, and we began to talk about the Lord's return, the Lord's return. And we started with that last week, and so we discussed the rapture of the church, the doctrine of the rapture, and what a blessing that is to the Christian. It is our hope, it is our comfort, and that was what Paul said at the very end of that text, that we are to comfort one another with these words. And so we discussed that in detail, but today we're going to be considering the Lord's return in a different way, a different aspect of the Lord's return, if you will. Today we're going to be looking at something called the Day of the Lord, the Day of the Lord. And so this ought to be applicable, this ought to minister to our hearts to be sure, 
But this is also going to be a little heavy on the Bible study end as well. I know some people came to me last week and said they kind of felt like it was that way and that they really appreciated that. I assured them there would be a little bit more to come. And one guy said, would you please use the laser pointer? And I said, all right, you got it. So laser pointer is out. And so I'm going in teaching mode today, all right? And so uh, it's, all, it's all good. This is great stuff. I get excited about it. We should get excited about it as we learn about God and the things of God and the implications that has for our lives. But as the rapture was something that we do look forward to, and we are comforted by this day of the Lord, this is something totally different. This is something that we do not want to be present for. This is something that we want to miss altogether. This is a return of Christ we do not want to be caught by surprise with. We don't want to be caught by surprise. The Bible says that the unbelieving world will be caught by surprise on this day. It will be caught by surprise. But the believers will not. The believers will not. The Christian does not live in fear of the day of the Lord. And that is good news. That is great news for us. Now let me just take a step back here and acknowledge that this stuff can be very confusing. You know, I got really excited as I began to dig into this because, you know, eschatology things uh, regarding the end times is something I've not looked too deeply in. I've kind of studied enough to, to be dangerous. I mean, to kind of know a little bit of what I believe and why I believe it. So as I got into this, I thought, okay, this is exciting. I'm ready to really tune up my understanding here, but now I'm more confused than ever, I feel like, and so, but I'm not, I'm not deterred. I'm not giving up. I'm going to keep pressing in and digging forward and, and developing my understanding more fully in these things, and so I'm still excited about it, but I just have to humble myself, and uh, you guys know this. I know this. I hope we all know this. I don't have all the answers. I don't have it all together, and uh, I have to just do the best I can with what I have at this point. And so having said that, Alistair Begg, I heard this years ago. In fact, Pastor Bill was the one that quoted this when he was teaching Revelation. And he said that we're, it's always safe, a good principle to go by is that the plain things are the main things. Right? And the main things should be the plain things. And so it's easy to get into all of the intricacies and the nuances and slice it a thousand different ways and get so confused, but what we really want to know is, what's the point, right? What's the point? What is it that Paul's trying to communicate here? Because he's not trying to write in mysteries. He wants us to understand the authorial intention, the authorial intent here. And so that, I believe that is plain for us. And so what we know is that there is a day coming, the day of the Lord. It's a day that we do not want to be here for. It is a day that will surprise many. And when I say surprise, I really want to focus in on that word. What I don't mean is like, oop, I didn't expect that. Surprise, it is like overtaken, caught by. It's like you're in the ocean, you're swimming, you're paddling along, everything's good, and then all of a sudden there's this huge wave behind you, and you don't know it's there, and then it crashes down and takes you away. You were caught by surprise. You were overtaken. And that is what this day is going to be like when it comes. People are going to be caught by surprise, it's going to be terror, it's going to be shock, and they're going to be taken away, overtaken. And so, the point, trust Christ so that you will be delivered from this day. 
plain and simple. Trust Christ so that you will not be overtaken on this day. Second point, if you're in Christ, be comforted that you will be delivered from this great day. Be comforted. And then I would say, live a holy life in the light of the coming of this day. Live a holy life in the fear of the Lord and knowing that this awful and terrible day is coming. Thank God that we'll be delivered from it, but that does not mean that we can just now let our guard down. We're exempt. We're delivered. We can just live however we want to. No, the Bible says all the more we should live in fear and holiness. Amen? And so I would just frame it right out the gate by putting those things forward here. That's what we want to keep in mind as we work through this. Now, this can also apply. This can apply to a a variety of people. There is a varied audience, I think. You have unbelievers, people who are separated from God. They don't know Jesus. They are outside of the faith. They are still guilty and in their sin, and they will have to stand before a righteous judge on that day, and it's going to be a terrible day. They do not know that this day is coming, and even if they do know it, they don't believe it. That is the unbeliever. Then there are false believers. There are those who profess faith in Christ, but they're not really in. They have some sort of a false assurance. The Bible talks about those types of people. They may believe this is going to happen, but they don't think they will be there for it. They think they will escape. They have a false assurance, a false security, a false hope. That's a scary thing to consider. And Paul says that we ought to examine ourselves to see whether we're really in the faith because we don't want to be in that group. Then I would say there are distracted believers. They believe these things are going to happen, but they give no thought to it whatsoever. They're much more mindful of the things of the world, the passing pleasures of this world. They're dazed. They're you know, just totally distracted, giving no thought to it. And then we have watchful believers Those who believe this stuff and they live holy lives in anticipation of it and lives of gratitude and thanksgiving to God because they know on that great day they will be rescued. All right? So it kind of applies to everybody in a sense. And so with that, let's go ahead and get into our text. And so 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11, living on the lookout. So point number one, point number one, the surprising nature of, of the day of the Lord. The surprising nature of the day of the Lord. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Now, this very first phrase, but concerning, this is significant. This is very significant. You would almost think As you move from chapter 4 into chapter 5, it is so seamless, you would think that we're still talking about the same topic. And some people do treat it as such, but the grammar here is very clear. There's a phrase there, but concerning, that is peri-day, and that signals a very clear change of subject. 
So there is a very clear distinction between the last portion of chapter 4 and the first portion of chapter 5. And that is important to note. And we find that same phrase in a number of other places, and we see it especially in 1 Corinthians as Paul is working his way through the letter, and he begins to hit on different subjects regarding various questions that they had, various sins that were happening in the church. You find this phrase over and over signaling a very real shift in content. And so that's what we have in front of us today. And so though it may almost seem as though Paul is continuing on in the same vein of thought, the same subject, there is a subtle switch here. And he says, concerning times and seasons. And so some people will look at this and think, that well, he was just talking about the rapture. And so he talked about the certainty of the rapture. And what he's now talking about is the time of the rapture. So the subject has switched in that sense. The certainty of it, but now the uncertainty of the timing. And that makes sense to me, but it's very clear as he moves in. He's talking about something very different than the rapture. And so he says, concerning times and seasons. Now these words, in general, speak to end times events. But the word times, it's chronos. It's the word that we get chronological. This is calendar time, clock time. And the word seasons is kairos. And this would be events, eras. I would even say characteristics of the era. Kind of the signs of the times, if you will. The nature of it. And so the events on God's timeline and the signs that accompany them. That's kind of what Paul's getting at here. You know these things. You know the events. And you know the signs that accompany them. Jesus even uses this kind of language in Matthew chapter 16. He uses it in a couple of places. But when the Pharisees, they came to him and they tested him and they wanted a sign, Jesus answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. And so we are to be a discerning people. We are to understand the times in which we live and the events on God's calendar. We're to be mindful of these things. We're to be aware of them and we're to be prepared for them. We are to be living on the lookout because it is going to be surprising to many. Many will be surprised by this. They, they will be overtaken. In fact, Paul says concerning these things, he says, you don't need for me to write to you because you already know perfectly. So the Christians, they knew this. They understood this. We understand this. Now, the reason why they were in the know about this is because this was not new information. This is something that's all throughout the Old Testament. But the rapture was not. Remember we talked about that last week? He said, I don't want you to be ignorant regarding this, regarding the rapture. He said, this we speak as a word from the Lord. This was kind of a, a mystery, something that had been hidden before, but now was being revealed more fully in the New Testament. That's the rapture. Paul had to inform them about that. But this, however, this day of the Lord, this was not new. They just needed to be reminded of it. Paul needed to remind them. And so with that, I'd like to take a moment and just talk about what is the day of the Lord? What is it exactly? And so last week I got in depth about the rapture and what it is and why that's such a blessed thing for us in the church. This week we're talking about the day of the Lord. 
And so what I wanted to do this time was kind of give you guys more of a broader timeline and major events that, that we have on this, on this scale, if you will. You guys okay with that? You know, I'm not trying to make you guys like have a, a perfectly clean theology, systematic theology here, but I want you to have some points of reference. I want you guys to have a little bit of a framework of what we're dealing with here. And so that's kind of what we're going to do at this uh, here in just a moment, but um, I have some things we'll put up on the screen. But before we even get to that, the day of the Lord, as I have already said, is not the same thing as the rapture. It's distinct. It's going to happen after the rapture, and the day of the Lord is going to be a time of catastrophic calamity. So John MacArthur describes it this way. He says, the day of the Lord describes God's cataclysmic future judgment on the wicked. It is mentioned explicitly 19 times in the Old Testament and four times in the New Testament, and it is alluded to in other passages. It will be the time when God pours out His fury on the wicked. In fact, Scripture three times calls it the day of the Lord or the day of vengeance. It's going to be a scary thing, a very awful thing. And so, in a sense, the day of the Lord speaks of a prolonged period of God's wrath. Um, several events that are going to take place, things that are outlined for us in the book of Revelation. Uh, but then I would say there's also a very specific day when the Lord Jesus Himself will touch down in, on this earth in wrath. And so just to, just to kind of give you guys a little bit of a picture, or understanding of what this, what this great and awful day of the Lord will look like, what it, what it sounds like from the Scriptures as it's described for us, in Revelation chapter 6, the, what I just read you, MacArthur, he said that there are, there are verses that allude to the day of the Lord. This would be one of the ones that he cites. And he says in Revelation 6 verse 12, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man. That's everybody. It's as high as it goes, as low as it goes, everybody. It says, "...they hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains." And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? That's heavy, is it not? I mean, that is scary stuff. To, to, to wish, to plead that the mountains and the rocks would crumble and fall upon you so that you can be hidden from the face of the Lord. And what's really interesting to me is this phrase, the wrath of the Lamb. That's kind of amazing, isn't it? I mean, I don't typically think of a lamb and think of that as scary, as a scary sight to behold. But this will be. When we see the one who has been stricken, when we see the one who has been wounded, and he comes in glory, and he comes as a warrior and a conqueror, it's going to be a terrifying thing. It's going to be a wrath-filled time. And so there is a day that the Bible describes for us, that great day when the Lord Jesus himself comes to conquer. And that is described for us in Revelation chapter 19. And I, I will continue on here. Verse 11, it says, Now I saw heaven opened, 
and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And so that is a description of our conquering king when he returns on that terrible day to strike the nations. And this last little phrase right here ought to catch our attention. He himself, he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. That language should sound kind of familiar to us. We understand the like crushing of grapes, right? We've all seen the grape crusher guy out there on the highway, and he's, he's twisting that crank, and it's crushing the grapes. Now, back in the day, you know how they would do it. They would stomp on them with their bare feet, right? And so I think maybe we're beginning to pick up on the imagery here. And so Jesus is going to be coming back with such carnage, trampling bodies and corpses in a bloody and horrific mess. Now, my pastor in South Carolina, he was teaching on that, and he got so excited. He was, like, pretending he was riding a horse and, like, trampling people down. And people got upset, and they're like, man, my kids are having nightmares because you did that. Could you tone that down just a little bit, pastor? And so I never forgot that. But that's, that's really the image. And that is, man, that's going to be a, a horrifying sight to behold when our God comes in wrath to vindicate in His justice. And in, oh man, it's going to be a glorious thing and it's going to be an, uh, an awful thing. And so that is the day of the Lord as He comes to judge. And so kind of having described that, here, here in a moment we'll kind of get into the the what of the day of the Lord? What's the significance of that to us? And what is this text actually saying about the day of the Lord? But I just wanted to kind of unfold that for you guys and help you understand what it actually is, what it is. And so with that, time to break out, break out the... I have a couple of lists I want to show you. And if you're not into this, I'm sorry. Just kind of bear with us. I know I've got some folks in here that are just going to be on the edge of their seats, riveted. And so uh, I, I want you guys to kind of understand the theological framework, what, who we are, uh, how we would describe ourselves, and, and how all this fits in, into that. So uh, we are, and this is not complicated at all, we are dispensational, pre-tribulation, pre-millennialists. Got that? All right, now let's all repeat that together. I'm just kidding. All right, so uh, the first slide, dispensational. Okay, so eschatology simply means end things. That's, that's what it means. So when we talk about prophecy, end times, events, that is eschatology. So we are dispensational, pre-tribulation, pre-millennialists. Got it? If you can say that five times fast, I'm impressed. All right, so I just want us to kind of start by recognizing we understand the whole Bible and events from the beginning to end to work together like this. So from the creation of all things and Adam and Eve to the fall in chapter 3. We don't really know how long a time period that was, but that was when it was all good. That was called the age of innocence. The age of innocence. 
But then there was the fall, we know, in chapter 3, and then came the curse. And so that brings us into the next stage, if you will. These are, these are by dispensations, I mean like eras, chapters, epics, if you will. And we understand there to be several of these, seven in fact, throughout biblical history. And so the first was innocence, the second is conscience, and that was from the fall till the time that Noah came. So after Noah came out of the ark, some things changed significantly. And Noah, you know, one of my professors in, in Genesis said, we tend to think of Noah as like a, a grandpa in a bathrobe or something. But he was like, he was the man. He was probably one of the most powerful monarchs in the world. For 300 years he reigned as the population began to explode and grow again. He was actually given the right of capital punishment by God at that point. And so that is when we would begin to understand a time known as government. And that was from Noah to Abraham. And then Abraham comes on the scene, and this is the time of the patriarchs, right? And that goes from Abraham to Moses. And then Moses comes along, and this is the law. So we're all, this, this should start to be sounding familiar to us. We understand the, the time of law. The law of Moses, typically when we look at the Old Testament, that's what's going through our mind. This is the, the era of the law, and that goes from Moses to Jesus, but then when Jesus came, praise God, we entered into the age of grace. That is the church age. And that is where we are currently. So from the first coming to the second coming of Jesus, this is the church age. Now, go back one more real quick if you would. Uh, at the end of that, we're going to have what is the millennial kingdom. And so that's significant. You really need to pay attention to that. The millennial kingdom. And so a lot of what we're talking about hinges and centers around our understanding of the millennial kingdom. So all that to say, we are currently in the church age, the age of grace. All right, God is filling up those whom he has called to salvation. We're in what is called the, the time of the Gentiles. And when the last have been brought in, the end of the church age will happen. And then we'll begin to see those, those final events unfold rapidly. Okay, so the millennial kingdom, this, this is from the second coming of Christ when he returns all the way to the eternal state. It's a thousand-year period. We believe it to be literal. Now, one of the reasons why I bring this up, dispensationalism, one of the things that's significant about dispensationalism is we believe God is still working in the Jews. God has something significant for Israel, for ethnic Jews. In the end, when it's all said and done, he made many promises to them. And he's going to keep those promises. Now, there are people who are not dispensational. One example, they would be called covenantal. And they believe that the church has replaced Israel, that, that we are spiritual Israel, and that everything God promised to them now belongs to us. They hate the term replacement theology, but uh, that, that in a nutshell is one descriptive. So one of the key aspects of dispensationalism is that we believe that God still has very real promises for the nation of Israel that must come to pass. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's dispensational. All right, if we can go to the next slide. This is, now we are pre-tribulation, pre-millennialists. And so, as I said, we are currently in the church age. The church age is going to end when the rapture happens. And so we talked about that last week. Jesus is going to come for his church. When we aren't expecting it, we will be caught up. 
we will be snatched away to meet the Lord in the air. And that's what they talked about in the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It comes from the Greek word harpazo, which means to snatch away, to catch up violently. And that's where we get the term rapture from. It's actually Latin, raptus. And so when that happens, that will set into place what we call the seven-year tribulation. Seven-year tribulation period. And some of what I read earlier describes events that are happening in the tribulation period. And we believe that that's going to be broken up into two, two chunks. So the first three and a half years of the tribulation, it's going to be a time of peace, prosperity. Everyone is going to be under one world ruler. We know who that is, right? It's the, the, who we would call the, the Antichrist or the, the beast. And then halfway through that point, the second three and a half years is going to be a time of absolute and total uh, judgment on the earth. God's wrath is going to start being poured out. And so then that will, be, that will end with the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And so Jesus will come with the saints from heaven, and he's going to set up his thousand-year millennial reign on the earth. And so this is an intermediate period between the time that we are in and the time of the final, uh, the final um, eternal state. And so for a thousand years, things are going to be very different. Jesus will be on the earth reigning uh, Satan will be bound, and uh, it's, it's the, the Old Testament talks a lot about this. It's going to be a very fascinating time, but it will be this in-between state between where we are now and the eternal state. And then there is what I have here, the day of the Lord part two. As I have understood it, you could almost see the day of the Lord as two different events. There is the one where he comes in at the end of the tribulation and then at the end of this reign right here, Satan is going to rise up and he's going to rebel one more time and he's going to lead the nations against Christ. And then there will be another judgment that takes place there and Christ will strike down Satan and those forces and Satan will finally be cast into the lake of fire. There's going to be the great white throne judgment where those who have not believed on Christ will be judged for their sins and they will be damned to hell and they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I'll put the Bema seat here. This is a judgment for the Christians. The Christians will not be judged because our sin has already been judged on the cross, on Jesus Christ, right? And so this is going to be a judgment of rewards. And so that which we did for Christ in this life, we will be rewarded for. If you did it for the right reasons, if you did it at all, there are people here who are giving no mind to serving the Lord whatsoever. And there are some who are serving Him, but they're serving Him to be seen. And Jesus says, you have your reward if that's your motivation. But that is what that reward will look like. Uh, some people will place this up here at the rapture. It could be. So I just have it here. But uh, most likely for the Christian, it does happen at the rapture. And then finally, after all of this is done, there is the eternal state. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and we will dwell on the new earth. People tend to think that we're going to be in heaven and that we're just going to be uh, bowing down and saying holy, holy, holy for eternity, but we're actually going to be inhabiting a new earth uh, in a perfected body and a perfected uh, earth, and it's, it's going to be pretty awesome. That's a whole, whole other thing, but that's, that's it in a nutshell. So I said a lot, and I hope that made sense. I hope some of you are still, still with me. hope you're all with me. So final slide. Let's put this together. So we're in the church age. All right? We believe that the rapture is going to happen, and it's going to end the church age and separate the tribulation. 
And so there will be a resurrection that happens. So the believers who have died already will be raised and resurrected, and the believers who are alive at that time will be caught up and will be changed, will be translated, if you will, will be glorified. And then the seven-year tribulation will happen right here, and we'll be with Jesus in heaven during that time. And then at the end of that tribulation period, we will come down with Christ. And I read that, what that's going to be like. We'll be with Him uh, coming down when He comes to conquer and reign. Then comes the thousand-year millennial period right here. And then at the end of that, there's going to be the judgment of uh, the lost, the great white throne judgment. And then there will be the eternal state where we will dwell forever. So that kind of puts it on a, uh, puts it on a timeline for you. You with me? All right, good. Praise. I have fun with this stuff. I don't know about you guys, but I have fun. So at any rate, so that's just kind of putting this all together. This is what we're talking about here. That's what's in front of the text, in front of us in our text today. The day of the Lord, the rapture, you know, the second coming of Jesus. These are all so very important to the Christian. They should be. And so with that, what does Paul say about the day of the Lord? In our text, he says that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. You know what that means? That means it's going to be unexpected when you least expect it, and it's going to be unwelcomed. Who here wants a thief to come into your house in the night? Nobody. All right? And so it's not a good thing. And Paul said that's what it's going to be like. Unexpected, unwelcomed. In Matthew chapter 24... Jesus describing the tribulation and His coming, He says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angel with a great sound of a trumpet. Does that sound familiar? The trumpet sound. And will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the end, the end of heaven to the other. From one end of heaven to the other. And then he says in verse 42, Watch therefore. Watch. Watch. For you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had not known what hour the thief would come, had known... Uh, excuse me, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. And so watchfulness. It's going to be a surprise for many people, but we're not going to be surprised by it because we're watching, we're ready, we're waiting. We are in Christ. We are prepared. And so, recognizing that many will be surprised on that great day. They will be overtaken. That's the nature of this thing. And you don't want to be surprised on that day. You want to be ready. And so, point number two, not only is it a surprise, but it's sudden. The sudden nature of the day of the Lord. Verse 3, For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. And so it is sudden. When they say peace and safety, when it's all good, when nobody's worrying about it, 
when it's all good down here and I'm very busy doing my thing and I'm concerned about the cares of this life, giving no, no thought or care to there and then, it happens like that, suddenly. Jesus describes this. He says in Matthew 24, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. In the days of Noah, it was rampant wickedness. But you know what? how he describes it here? Business as usual. They were eating and drinking. They were getting married, being given in marriage. It was life as usual. Things were normal. The next day, the next day, the next day will come, and things will just keep moving forward, and then sudden destruction. The flood came, and they were taken away in judgment. And so with God, this will be sudden. You know, I heard it said God really has two speeds, slowly and suddenly. Slowly and suddenly. And that is the truth, man. So often we, like, we wish God would hurry up, don't we? God, come on, come on. And we're trying to like force, force you know, whatever it is that we're hoping for or desiring. And God's just not on our timetable, it would seem. But so often there is this suddenness about God. All of a sudden it just happens. And so such will be the case here. And so that is the sudden nature of it. Sudden destruction comes upon them. And he says it's like labor pains that comes upon them. Labor pains. And so what we know about labor pains is it is sudden, and then it intensifies. It gets worse and worse and worse as it is imminent. The baby is coming, right? And so that's the idea here. There are the, the suddenness of it, then the labor pains, the intensif intensification, and then the coming. And then he says they shall not escape. You know what that means? It's too late. It's too late. It's too late at that point. You weren't ready. You weren't prepared. You weren't watching. And it was a surprise. It overtook you. It was sudden. It happens instantly. And then it's too late. It's too late. There's no escape. And so with that, that's heavy, isn't it? I mean, that's heavy stuff. And we should, we should feel some weightiness in this. It's scary. And so that leads us right into the next point here that Paul makes. And that is... The, the sobriety of the believer, the soberness, the sobriety of the believer concerning the day of the Lord. That is alertness. That is, that's being mindful, paying attention. And so recognizing these things, that it's going to be a surprise to many, it's going to come suddenly. And so we are those who are to be sober-minded in all of this. Verse 4, it says, "...but you, brethren, are not in darkness." so that this day should overtake you as a thief. But you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So if you are in Christ, then you are not one of those who will be caught unexpectedly. We are not those who will be taken away as a thief in the night. Paul says that we are not in darkness. You know, when the Bible talks about darkness... It means things like ignorant, that is without knowledge. It means deceived, deception. You know, it talks about blindness. 
without the ability to see, uh, without sight. Those are all kind of different ways of understanding darkness. And Paul said, you are not that. You are not in the darkness that this day should overtake you as a thief in the night. In fact, he says, we are sons of the day and sons of light. That is to say that we know the truth. We know the truth. We are informed. We are not deceived. We have the ability to see and discern. And he's talking about those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's the distinction here. You're either in Christ or you are not. You're either of the darkness or of the light. Either that day is going to catch you or it will not. That day is going to surprise you and overtake you or it will not. It's just that simple. And so Paul says, praise God that though that day will come as a surprise and it will come suddenly, you are children of the light and you will not be overtaken as one who is taken by a thief. Are you a child of the light? Are you ready for that day? Are you prepared so that you will not be caught slipping? Verse 6 says, Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep at night, uh, sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. So therefore, since we are sons and daughters of the day, since we walk in the light, since we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, let us be watchful, let us be mindful, let us be alert, let us be sober, let us not be sleeping. That is, dazed and unaware. You ever been in a sleep and then something crazy happens and you come to and you're kind of out of it and you don't know quite what's going on or maybe you don't even know where you're at. Have you ever had that happen? Sort of make a joke there. I won't do it. But um, nonetheless, there's a sense in which you come to and you don't know what's going on. You're dazed. You're unaware. He uses the metaphor here of drunkenness. Uh, and night, they kind of complement each other. This is a really weird story. I'm going to tell it anyways. I really debated on whether I even want to do this. We're in church and all, but when I was like, I don't know, 13 years old, I guess, 14, me and a buddy, we, we snuck out into the woods and we smoked some pot and I was blitzed. And we were walking down along this train track and I was just like, I was just kind of no, out, out in the middle of nowhere, just kind of zoned out, dazed. Well, we were beside this train, and my buddy literally shoots a bird at the conductor. And I, I'm not paying any attention to this. You know what the conductor does? He honks that train horn. And, I mean, I, we, I think we all know how loud those things are. You don't know how loud those things are unless you're, like, standing right on it. And so I'm, like, dazed, looking off into the left field, just kind of in another place, and all of a sudden that thing goes off, and I swear I about had a heart attack. And it was like a feeling of terror like I had never experienced before. It was like an out-of-body experience all of a sudden, where, and I can't even describe it. And I feel like in some way, some weird way, that's kind of what we're talking about. Days out of it, totally mindless, in a whole other place, and then bam, it comes upon you just like that. And you are shocked. You are taken. It is terror. And... He says, not so for the believer. Not so for the believer. We are not those who will be caught sleeping. We are not those who will be intoxicated or drunk. We are alert. We are vigilant. We are ready. We are in Christ. That is our hope. 
And so then he says in verse 8, let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So let us be sober. Let us be vigilant. Let us be alert. Let us be prepared. First Peter takes up the same language. He says in First Peter chapter 1, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And so Peter uses the same language. He says, Gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. Now, this, this imagery here of, of girding up. Now, in many cultures around the world, even today, a lot of times men will wear kind of longer, more flowing type robes and garments and things like that, but such was the case back then. And so if somebody had to, had to run or fight, and they had all these robes, it was all cumbersome, they would lift up their robes, and they could even tuck it under their legs, into their belt, and almost be like shorts, and they're ready to run, ready to fight, they're on guard, they're, they're ready, they're prepared, they can move. And so Peter says we need to do that with our minds, that we need to be, we need to be alert, we need to be sober-minded, and we need to set our hope upon the grace that is to be brought to us at Jesus Christ when He comes. And then he says in light of that, we are not to conform ourselves to our old former lusts, but we are to live a life of holiness as we wait upon the Lord in His coming. Amen? We are to be holy people. Knowing that the Lord is coming back ought to set within us this urgency to serve Him faithfully while we're here and to live holy and godly lives in anticipation of His coming and trying to reach others so that they will not be caught unprepared on that terrible day. We have work to do. Amen? We're not to be sleeping. We're not to be snoozing. We're not to be dazing. We are to be in the game, alert, waiting for the Lord, living godly lives and trying to reach other people because we know that horrible day is coming. Paul uses the imagery of a soldier who is armored up and dressed for action. It says, put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. So this guards the heart, the breastplate, and it guards the mind. And what is it that he says guards our hearts and minds? Faith, love, and hope. The hope of our salvation. And so there it is, folks. We are to gird ourselves up. We are to put on this armor, and we are to have the armor of faith, love, and hope. Faith in Jesus Christ, love for God and for one another, and confidence in our deliverance from the wrath to come. Do you have that? Do you have that confidence? Do you have that hope? Do you have faith in the Savior Jesus? Do you have love for Him and love for His people? Do you have confidence and your deliverance from the wrath to come. Are you guarded in that way? Is your, your mind and your heart shielded in that way? And so Paul says, let us do that. Let us be prepared. And so with that, that leads us to our fourth and final point. If that is you, then there is security for the believer concerning the day of the Lord. So there is the, the surprising nature of the day of the Lord. Many will be overtaken by it. There is the sudden nature when they least expect it. 
For us, we must live a sober life. We must be sober-minded concerning the day of the Lord. And if you are, then there can be, you can have security. The security of the believer concerning the day of the Lord. And this is the good news. Verse 9, it says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. There it is. That is the hope of the believer. That is the good news for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has not appointed us to wrath. We will not be caught unprepared on that day. We will not be caught slipping. We will not be overtaken as it were. For God has not appointed us to wrath. God has sovereignly and graciously rescued us from the wrath to come. His wrath. The wrath of Almighty God that is going to be poured out on the world. That is going to be poured out in its fullness. There is coming a day. Right now, that wrath is being stored up. You know, we, we look around at injustice and, and we hate it as we ought. And we think, why God do these things, kind of, these things happen? But you know what? God's wrath, the Bible says, is being stored up. It's building. It's building on that great day. Right now, He's extending forgiveness. Here it is. You can have it through my Son, Jesus Christ. It's yours. But back here, He's storing up that wrath. And one day, the dam is going to break. And the flood of God's wrath is going to come forth in its fullness upon this world. And Paul says that if you are in Christ, you have not been appointed to that awful day. That you have been appointed to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. Sovereignly and graciously rescued from the wrath to come. And so, he says that it is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the agent of our salvation. It's Christ who accomplishes this great, this great work for us. And how did He do it? It says here, who died for us through His death and resurrection. So that's our hope, folks. That's our hope. It's the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that is going to keep us from that great day of wrath? It's that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath on the cross for us. For us. Our sins were paid for. If you are in Christ, your sin was there on that cross as He was nailed there, suffering under the wrath of God Almighty. And so either your sins are judged there on the cross, Calvary's tree, or your sins will be judged and you'll be the one paying for it when God's wrath is poured out. And it's, you're in one, one or the other and there's no in-between. There's no other option. But praise God, the Bible says that we can turn to Christ and we can have our sins forgiven and we can be made new in Him and we can have the love of a Heavenly Father as our own and we can be children of God. And so that's so crucial, so crucial. Do you know Jesus? Have you trusted Him as your Savior? Have you confessed your sin to Him and declared your need of Him? Are you going to be prepared on that great day? Will you be coming with the Lord and His saints or will you be there when God's wrath is visited upon the earth? And it's really just that simple. That's the point here. We don't want to be recipients of God's wrath on that day. And if you're in Christ, you don't have to be. 
because Jesus has already died for your sins and your sins are forgiven and now you will reign with Him forever. And it says that whether we wake or sleep, that we should live together with Him. And that's really what it's all about, isn't it? What, and what he means here is whether we are alive here or whether we pass and go into the next life, we will be with Jesus. We're with Jesus here or there or both, but that's what it is all about in the end, being with Him, to be with Jesus forever. And that's really what heaven is all about. It's about a person more than a place. It's about being with our Savior who has loved us so, and we love Him too. And we praise Him forever and we serve Him gladly. We thank Him for the deliverance that is ours through the finished work of the cross. And then finally, Paul says in verse 11, therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you are also doing. So just as we could comfort each other with the fact that the Lord is coming, He's coming for His church. I talked about how we get so wrapped up in the things of this earth that we're so stressed out, we're so angry, we're so confused. When the reality is there's something so much greater, there's something so much bigger, the Lord is coming back. And the Lord is coming for His church. And we can just let go. And we can rest in that. And we can encourage one another with those words. In the same way we can encourage one another, the Lord's coming back to judge the world and we're not going to be here. We've been rescued. We've been delivered. God's wrath will be poured out on a God-hating, rebellious world and we have been rescued. We have been delivered. We can comfort one another with these words. One day, all of the wrongs are going to be set right. One day, all of the atrocities, all of the injustices that anger us so are going to be dealt with. God will have His day. God will have His day when He will set things straight. And we don't want to be here on that day. And God has rescued us out. And we can encourage and strengthen one another in that truth. That ought to be a comfort. It ought to be something through which we encourage and comfort one another in. Amen? So we want to be mindful of these things. So don't, don't be caught sleeping. Don't be deceived. Don't be blind. We want to be awake. We want to be alert. We want to be those who are found prepared. When the master returns, we want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ today, then today is the day of salvation. Today is the day you can call upon the Lord. You can know him savingly. You can have your sins forgiven, be born again, be a part of the family of God. We, we would love to be your brothers and sisters, and you can be saved from that day. For those of us who, who are, let us be watchful. Let us be vigilant. Let us be sober. Let us be serving the Lord and living holy lives for Him until the day that He comes back. Amen? Because He is coming back. Let's pray. Father, we love You. Thank You so much, God, that You have not appointed us to wrath. Thank You, Lord, that You called us out of darkness and into light. Thank You that we are found in Christ. And we are not those who are asleep or who will be taken as a thief in the night. Praise You, Father. Thank You, God, that You lifted us up out of that pit. You set our feet upon the rock. Thank You, God, that we are Yours and that You are ours. 
We praise you, Father, and I pray for all the people here today, this coming week, God, that you would lead them, including myself. Lead us, Father. Encourage our hearts. Strengthen us in your grace, God. Use us for your glory. Would you give us an opportunity, Father, many opportunities to serve you, to serve you and to love and to reach other people, to be used in kingdom work. Father, I pray that you would provide for the needs of the people here, for they are many and they are diverse, but you know them all, God, and you are able. You are able to meet every single need. And so we look to you, Father. Would you bring comfort to the hurting? Would you bring strength to the sick, God, and health and healing? And God, would you lead us in the good way? We praise you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.